Thank you all for having me back. It is a delight to be here with you. This morning, if you guys have a Bible or a, a Bible app on your phone, we're going to be diving into Romans chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 26. So that's kind of where we're going to be sitting and resting in, is Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 26. Let me set this up real fast for us. So when we dive in, we see the necessity of what the Apostle Paul is about to bring to us, but also the beauty of what he's about to bring to us. Paul is writing a doctrinal treatise to a young Roman church. The church in Rome has not had the risen Jesus visit it, nor an apostle yet come visit it. This is a young church. But yet their faith is being pronounced in the world, and Paul is hearing of their faith from far off. And Paul's writing a letter to them because he cannot be with this young church, which he wants to see grow into greater maturity. So what he's doing is he's writing about some core doctrinal truths that this young church must believe. They must grow, they must develop, and become big and strong, fully devoted followers of Christ. And he's writing to them because he can't be with them. And Paul cannot be with this young Roman church in person because what's going on right now is he's been collecting money also along his missionary journey to give back to the Jerusalem saints, those folks who are being persecuted for their faith in Jerusalem. And he's bringing back money from his trip and these churches he's been visiting, he's bringing back money to care for the students who cast out of their homes, who are being tortured for their faith, who are losing their farms or businesses. And so that is pressing, that's what is on his mind. But yet he knows and hears of this young church in Rome and he cares deeply about these people, but he can't be with them. So he sends them a beautiful doctrinal letter that says, hey, I've heard of your faith. Let's keep growing. Let's keep diving to the, the depths of God's goodness and His grace. And let's keep growing and maturing. And so this is what we have, a doctrinal treatise in the letter to Romans. But what we have are some very hard things. Just like sometimes as our children get older, we've got to tell them about hard realities of life, right? Maybe we don't do that when they're two or three or four. But maybe when they're 13 or 14, we're having a different level of conversation with them, right? This young church is being grown, they're maturing, and Paul is about to give them some core truths that are hard, but that are necessary for their growth and their development. And so this is what we have in Romans 3. One of my friends, when I was in college, he says this, and I think this is true of this passage in Romans 3. He says, Jeff, me in college, cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, and then he also says, he says, but it's also true, Jeff, that God's grace is a lot bigger than you think it is. And so with that, he brought me into Romans 3, and then that's what we get to do as well, giant, jumping into Romans 3. But pray with me before we get started. Lord, you're faithful, you are good. Lord, you do not leave us where we are. Lord, you continue to grow us, to challenge us, to shape us, to mold us into the people where you want us to be. And sometimes, Lord, that maturity, that process of growth um, can sometimes look like pain and difficulty and sometimes learning hard truths and hard realities. And Lord, I pray that you prepare us as we dive into the doctrine of total depravity 
And Lord, also the beautiful doctrine of justification, that we're saved by you and you alone. Lord, prepare us for these, Lord, beautiful things that we need to understand. And Lord, you need to also give us gifts to others, Lord, who don't know these things. Lord, we love you. Thank you for drawing us. Thank you for being gentle with us, Lord, as sometimes these things, Lord, aren't as beautiful in our lives as maybe they ought to be. So thank you for this time to dive deep into your truth. Thank you for leaving us, Lord, with this goodness and this grace that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Every religion has a set of core beliefs, right? Core doctrines that you must believe. That is the heart and soul of that religion, and that you must believe and follow after to be called followers of that religion. Right? In Hinduism, to be called a Hindi, you've got to believe there is uh, such a thing as divine beings, gods or goddesses, that are transcendent and that they can move into, though, also the earthly realm and bear weight in our world. Just like a Hindu also needs to believe in karma, right? That kind of what goes around comes around, and that your behavior matters in this life and the next form of your next life, right? If you do a lot of bad things, you might pay for that in the next life to come, and you might come back, not as a human being, but maybe as a dumb beetle, right? Not good. But if you do a lot of good things, maybe you might move up an elevated status. These are poor beliefs in your religion, among many others. To be also, though, right, if you're Muslim, there's certain things you must believe. First, that Muhammad is the true and last and greatest prophet, right? He was born in the 7th century, but Allah spoke to him in the cave through the angel Gabriel and gave him truth that was uncorrupted because, as God had told Muhammad, the former prophets, you would have to believe, if you're Muslim, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus, their words were corrupted and mistranslated throughout time. And so the manifestations we have now, they're not good, and that's why God spoke to Muhammad, right? And you've got to believe that, that then Muhammad is bringing this good news, things that we can do to also right our status with God. And so the angel said, there's five pillars you must do. And these are things that good Muslims must believe and must do to right their personal wrongs in light of a holy God. And it says this. He says, you must declare your faith. There's no deity except Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. You must have formal five prayers a day, right? That there's also zakah. You must give charity and alms to the poor. You must fast during the month of Ramadan. And also, you must, in your lifetime, make a pilgrimage to Mecca, to Hajj, right? And to, to be a good... Muslim. These are things that we, we ought to do. These are things essentially in these religions, with all the bad things we do, help us kind of, they, they right the wrongs of their followers, or move you in that trajectory to kind of right those things, and to become a better person, or to do more good in light of God. Christianity is unique in world religions because it's the one world religion that says it's not about what we can do in this life, but about one who God has sent, who has come, who does for us. So we don't have five steps to do these things, and you will then not only be elevated, and you'll have bliss and glory. No, we trust in this life that there's a guy who came, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life for us, one that we can never live. Because, let me tell you, 
as we're going to learn in this passage, there's a lot more bad than we realize in our hearts and our lives and our motivations. And we can never do enough right things to somehow right, outweigh all the bad things. And we are stuck with this. But the Christian religion says that the way out is not through sheer human effort. It's through trusting in the personal work of Jesus Christ, who's the Son of God. But the core beliefs that we are being reminded of is that there is a great chasm. There is a divine measurement that we are measured with. We have a perfect, a holy, a righteous God who sits in heaven and who is also a judge. That is true. We're also exposed to a truth that our, our, our iniquity, our sin, our motivations, our being is corrupt. And so there is a chasm because we do not meet the standard or measurement of perfection in any way, shape, or form. But the good news is, is that we don't have to work that off to be in a right standing with God. This is a passage that we get, that Paul is bringing not only to this young church, but to us. That he's saying, I know you live in the world around you says, you must work these things off to be accepted. He says, no, 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 no. There is one who's come for you, who's lived the life you could never live in a thousand lifetimes to right the wrongs that you've done that you'll continue to do throughout your life. And that it's his grace, unmerited favor that gets you in a right standing with God. But in order to see this good grace as great and beautiful, you have got to understand the depths of your human heart apart from Christ. To see that this is good grace, but you've got to understand where you come from to know that you need saving and you're drowning if you don't have Christ. And so this is what he says in verses 9 through 20. We only have two points today, but the first point is total depravity. And Paul lays out for us what this is in verses 9 through 20, chapter 3. He says, What shall we then conclude? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God all have turned away and have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says those who are under the law, so that every mouth shall be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. In the Old Testament, the law was a gift to people to help regulate their life, to know what holiness looked like, to know what also missing the mark looked like. But let me tell you, when we read through the 600 plus laws of the Old Testament, what did that remind the people of God constantly? You do not measure up to meet the holy and perfect standard. Because we can't do all those things. We can't live perfectly on this side of heaven. And so in chapters 1 and 2, Paul is writing this young church and saying, guys, there's a lot of sin in our lives. 
all people, Jew, Gentile, like meaning you, your neighbors, people in your workplace, me, my family, everybody, humankind is under sin. There is nobody that that doesn't include. If you're a human, if you're breathing, or if you have lived on planet Earth, you are under sin. You've inherited it, and you compound it by doing more sin in your natural nature than we have, is what he says. That we are not morally neutral, and that we are not good from birth, that some people believe. He says, no, we are actually spiritually destitute, depraved. We are not good from birth. And human works, human deeds, moral things are not good enough to right that wrong in God's eyes between us and him. That that chasm is too big, and we cannot bridge that gap. He says, what shall we then conclude? He says, well, we're, we're people who are under sin. This is a status. He's saying that you are declared citizens of the state of sin. You live in the commonwealth of sin, and that's true because on your passport with your name and your picture... It says you are from a state of sin, and it's laminated. And you all know those laminated passports. That means you cannot change it. You cannot alter it, right? It will not be accepted when you get on planes and whatnot. You are declared citizens of sin, and that is just true of you. It's a legal stamp. That's a tough thing because what we're being, what's being said of us is that we are, another way of saying this is we are unrighteous. We are not right with God from birth onward. It's a positional status that things are not okay between us, the created, and our maker. And that's a problem because our maker is a God of wrath and also a God of justice. And he will exact his wrath and justice. That's what the Bible says. And we are not right. And so we are in the crosshairs, he's saying, of God from birth. And so these are seven reasons why we are under a state of sin. And I want you to feel the weightiness because that's exactly what he says. This is bleak stuff that you need to understand. That, that's true of us, that we are in a dark place apart from Christ. He says, our legal standing, no one's righteous, he says. No one's deeds can change that fact and make you righteous. He says, you can't do enough good. You are unrighteous. He says, our mind, nobody understands God. Because our core nature is actually corrupted by sin. We cannot fathom light because he says, you're born into darkness is the imagery. You're born into it. You have no concept of light because you've never had light break in and enter into the room in which you live. You're in total, utter spiritual darkness. That's where you're born. That's where you reside until the one day Jesus breaks in and shows you light and shows you there's a dichotomy between the two. Right? He says, our motives. He says, no one seeks God because none of us really want God for himself, for God's sake. To know him. He says, often though, what we want is we want things from him. Sometimes like using God in a cognitive vending machine. We don't want God for himself. We want things we can get from God. Blessings. So then we can go on our independent way, living apart from God. That is truly human nature apart from Christ changing us. Paul says our wills is human nature, our hearts. There's a, there's a willfulness about our wandering away from him, going towards things, idols that we try to fill the chasms of our lives to make us feel better or to cope with life. He says there's a lot of self-determination actually in that. Maybe you're not aware of it, but there's a lot of willfulness in our turning away from Christ and God in the Bible and things. 
And that's true of our heart. We want to be the captains of our own ships, essentially. He says our tongues, they're open graves which practice deceit. He's saying what calms and emanates, the smell that comes out of our, our breath. It is stinky, like in the morning, right? So you brush your teeth or rinse it. It is not delicious, right? He's saying that's true, actually, of our heart. And what's emanating out of our heart, right, is, is death. He's saying we are rotting corpses. Spiritually, there's a stench of inward decay apart from Christ, and that emanates out of us. And it comes out of our lips like deceit, shading information, white lies, privately building ourselves up before others, putting other people down, all sorts of ways. What's true of our hearts comes out of us. And our words betray our true nature. All right? And he's saying this is true of humans. He says our relationships are even corrupted. Now, we may not be swift to shed blood, right? But let me tell you, there's things in our lives that lead to ruin and misery. He also says in our human relationships, the ways of peace they do not know. Are all of your personal relationships, would you characterize them as 100% peaceful? Probably not. Whether children, neighbors, bosses, workplaces, right? Like, we don't have perfect peace everywhere. He says this is true of human nature. That misery and ruin and feeling alone marks our ways, just like in human nature. We see death all the time, murder, right, all the time. We just have to watch the news, right? And then we begin to see that this is true. He says our relationship with God is even corrupted because we don't have fear of God. We fear mankind. We fear our husbands, our spouses, our children, right, our teachers, professors our bosses, a lot more than we fear God. And he says, that's a problem. This is true of human nature apart from Christ. Things are not okay between us and our maker. We are steeped in darkness. This is what total depravity is. This is the, the nature of the human heart. Self-focused, prideful, habitually grasping after things, material things in this world which will never fill, unholy lead us more towards cyclical darkness. That is the nature. To give you just two quick brief illustrations of that, I love my beautiful children, but let me tell you, when my daughter was one, I never had to teach her to bite or hit her brother, and then to smile and take joy in that hitting and biting of her brother. I didn't have to do that. She did that intuitively. Her little nature, right, masochistic nature, enjoys hitting her brother or biting him, and then laughing and giggling and looking at Daddy like, are you proud of me? I'm like, no, this is not good. We should not do these things. Or my beautiful son, who I love dearly, when he was 14 months old, and he would emotionally manipulate his daddy. He would cry, and cry loudly with such gusto that I knew he would because he would only cry this loud when I would have him. This would be when Mom was away, and he would want a cookie. And until Daddy got that double stuffed Oreo cookie brought to him, it would be waterworks and just ear-piercing screeches. But when Daddy would go get that double stuffed Oreo cookie and bring it towards him, let me tell you, instantaneous, he would look like a little angel. The waterworks would dry up, and he would just look as happy as he would be as he was diving into that little cookie. I did not teach him how emotionally manipulate me. All right, this is in my little boy's little heart. Let me tell you, these things, I'm not, you know, number one dad in the world. Not true, right? 
But let me tell you, these things were not learned. This is part of their little hearts. Corrupted, right? And the brokenness. Now, they're not as sinful as they could be, just like we may not be as sinful as we could be. We can get a whole lot worse, y'all, and you know this. We can get a whole lot worse. But God is saying our hearts are ones that do not desire beauty and good and godliness because it's deeply apart from the miraculous work of Christ saving us from our sins. That's what's there. And if you don't believe me, let me read some other passages in the Old Testament that say this very same thing that Paul's saying in the New Testament. Jeremiah, the prophet says in 17.9, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in this world in iniquity and sin, and in sin my mother conceived me. Genesis 6.5 says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of mankind, that it was so great on earth, that their every intent and their thought of their heart was only continually evil. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man or woman on earth who continually does good and never sins. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, as Paul is saying to Christians about their former status before Christ saved them, he says, this is true of you Christians before Christ saved you from that dark place. He says, and you, Ephesian Christians, you were formerly dead in your trespasses and sins which you once walked, following the course right, of the world, following the prince of the power of error, Satan, and that the spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, those who don't love Jesus, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. He's saying before Christ saved you, and Christ did all the work, he says, you had God's cosmic right axe hanging over your head, and that you deserved justice, and that justice looked like eternal damage before Christ saved you from that. That's what he's saying. You were dead, right? If you're, any of you watched The Walking Dead on AMC, that's you spiritually in every sense of that before Christ saved you. You have a virus that has infected every compartment of your life and being. Part you are don't even you don't even know about yet. He says, every part is death. Because it's in sin. That is the human heart. And that is a whole lot of bad news. And that is not fun stuff. I do not delight in teaching with the doctrine of total depravity, but we cannot miss it. You have got to hear, and I hope you feel the weightiness, if you don't now, I hope you do later, of what's being said here in these first verses. Because the good news isn't all that good if you don't understand how bad the bad news truly is. You're a whole lot worse. I am. We are a whole lot worse than we think we are. You think you're good? You're not. I'm not. The Bible says that. So this is where the good news comes in, though, verses 21 through 26. He says, and every time the Bible says, but now, good things are coming. It says, verse 21, but now, apart from the law, us striving to do moral good deeds, to right our wrongs, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, testifies about. 
Verse 22 says, This righteousness, though, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew or Gentile, for all people have sinned, and all people fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is good news. This is like an overstuffed pinata. We're getting close to October 31st. An overstuffed pinata of good news filled with premium candy like Rolos and Snickers and Twix and Mr. Good Bars. This passage is not the pinata with like the, the double bubble, the pickle lemon, right, and some of these other kind of hard candies that are, you can't even taste because they're so gross. This is good stuff, premium stuff we're getting here. The doctrines of grace we're getting in these five verses. Righteousness by faith, not by your works, but by faith in the man who did those works for you. Justification is going to talk about, and then also atonement. We get this good stuff that says, this is the way to righteousness, to bridging the chasm between us and God. Verse 22 says, The righteousness is given to us through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Meaning a right standing with a holy, just, perfect God is possible, but not by your works, but by one who came and who did perfect works, Jesus Christ. Even with all the messed up secret stuff that we do that nobody knows about, there is one who bears the burden for those things that only you know about. And that person who writes even those secret wrongs is a person who has died on the cross for you. Jesus' passport is perfect. His residential status is heaven, it's righteousness, it's perfection. He is from righteousness, he lives in righteousness, he is righteousness. And what he gives to you when you believe and what he's done on the cross is for you and it's good news for you and that you need it, you get his passport. Even though yours still says you reside in a state of sin and that's still true of our right nature, you get what you don't deserve. His perfect passport says he's from a state of righteousness and goodness and perfection. Another way of looking at this is through the doctrine of justification. You are legally declared, the doctrine of justification says, that you are free to go in God's holy court of law, that you're free of all sins, all things where you have missed the mark, you have done something self-centered, or you've done something messed up or wrong, even if it's just the thought you did that God. That has a cost. And this is saying you're innocent of that declared free. You can leave, said court of law. Gavel comes down. You're free to go. Jesus walks in and takes on the orange jumpsuit that you were wearing. And guess what? Instead of him, right, getting 10 to 15, he gets a death sentence for you. That's the reality. And he goes away and pays the punishment. It is your sins, my sins, my children's sins, which handcuffed Christ to the cross, and he could not get off. 
He had to pay the penalty that you never want to pay, I never want to pay, so that we don't have to have that, so we can experience redemption, glory, bliss, goodness, having a God who loves us. That is what he did. The doctrine of atonement says that Christ absorbed God's wrath that rightfully hung over our heads. But he absorbed it, taking the blows that we should have taken in this life and the life to come so that we could experience glory forevermore. That's what being said here. Verse 25 and 26, as I said, says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, not yours, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because previously he had not punished the sins of those and even the Old Testament before. The bulls and the blood of the goats and rams in the Old Testament, that did not completely justify everything. What it did was delay the punishment. A perfect sacrifice had to be made. Jesus was that perfect sacrifice. The good news is only good news when you realize how messed up you truly are. That you do not deserve God's grace. Let me tell you that. You, you hear that. You do not deserve it. I don't deserve it, y'all. And sometimes we think that we're pretty good people because we're maybe not doing real big, big sins. Let me tell you, we don't deserve it. I don't. We never will. And until you begin to actually see that, because Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. I am messed up. This is a guy who's the greatest missionary ever. And he's saying, I'm the worst of sinners. And he believes it. Because he knows his laminated status on his passport says he's a resident of sin. And he lives in it. He may travel abroad from time to time, but he stays there. The good news is, though, is that when he puts his faith in Jesus, he gets a passport that says, state your place of residence. And it says righteousness. And the picture is of Jesus. And that gets him into heaven forevermore. That gets him to a state of a right standing with a holy God that has real standards. And it says, you're free to go. You don't have to pay what you've done. And you'll continue. Because I paid for it. And I love you. And I'm with you when you continue to mess up in this life. That's grace, unmerited favor. That is what the gospel is. I close with this. Cheer up, my friends. You're a whole lot worse than you think you are. It's true of me, too. But you can also cheer up because God's grace is a lot bigger than you or I ever think that it is. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are faithful. Lord, doctrines like this of total depravity and justification are often hard to swallow, but they are so true of us. Lord, the good news is not very good if we are not very bad. And Lord, if the darkness isn't that dark, the light is not all that light. And Lord, I pray we would begin to hear the weightiness of what we've done and how wrong the thoughts, the motives, the words, the things that we've done in this life, the weight of that, the wage of sin is death. We don't have to pay that because you paid it for us. Or give us hearts of gratefulness, of graciousness to others when others wrong us. Give us hearts of repentance, Lord. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your goodness, Lord, to us all the days of our lives. And all God's people said, Amen.